I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guest is a star underwriting executive with a laser-sharp focus that is really distinctive. I think Tal Beerbaines is one of the most single-minded and driven people I've ever had on the show. He is also moving incredibly quickly. Since the last time I spoke to him back in 2020, his Volante global business has grown premium substantially, found new ownership as part of the Acrishaw Group, and launched a syndicate at Lloyd's. I just had to get him back to make sure we kept up with all the things that have happened in the last 24 months. And I'm really glad I did, because despite the apparent whirlwind surrounding him and his fast-growing business, it's Talbeer's rock-solid convictions that permeate every minute of this podcast. Volante is a business with a focus on underwriting profit that is bordering on obsession, and five minutes with Talbeer can leave you in no doubt that this company's uncompromising philosophy and culture originates directly from him. Talbeer has also been through a life-changing personal experience since we last met, and that only heightened the intensity of talking to him face-to-face once more. I can't help thinking we could all learn an awful lot, not just from listening to what Talbeer's got to say, but by studying precisely what he has done to position Volante as an underwriting business that is so consistently highly rated and respected by its peers and stakeholders. Of course, living and breathing underwriting discipline is far easier said than done. So listen on, and see if you can get some of Talbeer's passion and belief to rub off onto you. Enjoy the podcast. This episode is supported by Oxbow Partners. Oxbow Partners is a management consulting business specialising in the London, Bermuda and European insurance and reinsurance markets. In fact, in 2021 and 2022, they were named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. It's fascinating speaking to the team about the kinds of topics they're supporting. Helping reinsurers take a strategic view of their operating models. Designing smart follow syndicates in the Lloyds market. And developing ESG responses. The company's strapline talks about giving executives a fresh perspective. So if you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, I'd recommend giving the team at Oxbow Partners a call. Well, Talbir, welcome to the Voice of Insurance. Thank you, Mark. Delighted to be in your presence again and and the opportunity to discuss Volante in the industry. It's really good to be here face to face in the middle of London. Last was during a lockdown and we were online and it's never quite the same thing. Obviously, a huge amount has happened since we last spoke. It was about two years ago. In Volante years, it seems that two years is a really long time. So you've had a change of ownership. Yes. And you've launched Lloyd Syndicate. We're going to talk about both of those things. What about the change of ownership? So take us through that thought process. When we left you, you were owned by Nafila, and then Nafila was taken over by Markel. And then what happened next? Yes. So in the time just before the pandemic, 2020, Frank Majors and I were discussing the future plan for Volante and, and Frank Majors and Phil were wonderful and instrumental in their sponsorship of me and the Volante business to bring us to where we stand today. Back in late 2017, they made the seed capital investment and discussing those future plans just pre-pandemic, we were off the view that for Volante to truly achieve its ambition, its scale, its diversification, the breadth of a very strong plan that we had in our vision, it would be potentially beneficial to find a new ownership moving into the, the next chapter because we were coming up to the end of four years. And so we embarked on a, a sort of exploratory process to find a potential new and right investor for the business going forward. And that led to the conversation with Graham Millwater at Acrishaw, and Graham Millwater and I have worked 
closely together ever since I started my career in this industry in 1998. And at Crashaw, they were your capacity-seeking broker? Yes, they were closely involved in our existing capital relationships. They've always been a very strong partner in that regard, a very highly technical binder broker who sources capital in a more defined and, and refined structuring. So we've always enjoyed that being quite technical and aspirational around our capital. So Graham also brings a very strong reputation with capital markets. And there's a real flavor of wanting to work with Graham and Acrishaw from capital partners. And therefore there wasn't going to be anything offensive about Volante being owned or majority owned by a broker in this sense. Whereas perhaps with some broking houses, there would have been some contention or some feeling of, is there a dilution of alignment from this underwriting fraternity that is Volante? We would never want to create that fear for our capital partners. Our capital partners have always supported us on the basis of our alignment, of our strength of integrity when it comes to underwriting decision. And we go into the AcroShore world being the subject matter experts in underwriting with the empowerment that we make our decisions around our underwriting 100%. Nothing changes in that regard. The only potential strength we now have going forward is we have an ownership which is wanting to give us the full support of investment to build our business in the way we want to. We do have big ambition, grand ambition to make Volante very powerful, not on the basis of how many underwriting teams do we have and how many flags do we have around the world, but rather what is the strength and robustness of the offering. And indeed, our plan going forward out three years to the end of 2024 is predicated on expansion of existing business, which is already in Volante. So we currently have 19 underwriting teams in the business. Our plan through 23, 24, 25 does not seek to have more than 19 teams. It is the existing 19 teams, but to expand them within their territory, within their product, and examples thereof would be our Nordic team, which started off in Stockholm, is now also having an office in Copenhagen. We're currently setting up in Oslo and ultimately Helsinki by the end of 2023. That gives us a full circle of Nordic presence with the same product, with the same system, with the same wordings. So it's much more scaling out what you've already built. Exactly. So you've done the hard part of building it, and now you can actually get it to write twice as much. Or... Exactly. We're putting boots on the ground who have been in territory as underwriting experts for decades, 20 years, 30 years. And that form of expansion for us brings a lower risk of execution and a greater degree of confidence around delivering the COR, which is what this business is predicated on. When we left off a couple of years ago, I asked you the question whether you'd be wanting to set up your own risk-bearing balance sheet, and you said that was definitely an ambition, and one you followed up on quite quickly afterwards. Was the change of ownership also partly to do with that? Was that another factor in your mind when you were thinking about it? No, the, the Lloyd Syndicate ambition, aspiration was entirely independent of the ownership ambition or initiative. The, the Lloyd's ambition was to really look at our business, take a look at the group. We were a mixture of London-based niche specialist underwriting teams and overseas niche specialist teams. And how do we create a construct whereby we bring a proposition to Lloyds, which is entirely accretive, totally differentiated, 
and speaks to procuring overseas local businesses through local talent that otherwise does not make its way to London unless it's through a very costly distribution chain. And so we had a ready-made offering in that regard with teams overseas, across Europe, the Americas and Asia-Pac. And so that's what led to our syndicate plan construct. And therefore today we have a business in Volante, which is two delineated divisions. One is an MGA, which is underwriting to third party capital through binding authority agreements that we procure with a very select panel of capital partners. And the syndicate is a group of overseas teams, which is entirely dedicated to Lloyd's. They are service companies, approved Lloyd service companies, and they write to the syndicate. 100% the syndicate is not a sidecar to the MGA. It's delineated business. And those divisions are creating their own portfolios through their construct, ones with the Lloyd stamp, ones with third party capital stamp. So really, you're nothing like, you know, when we think of an MGA setting up a risk balance sheet, it's often to show that you've got skin in the game, to be effectively as 10%, 5% or whatever it is, sidecar to keep your capital providers comfortable to know that when they bleed, you bleed as well, not just on profit commissions, that you really are fully ultra aligned. You've got your own money in there as well. It's not actually necessarily that, is it? You know, you're not really like a hybrid carrier or anything like that. No, and, and the alignment piece is our defining differentiator, Mark. I mean, we had already established and evidenced our alignment through our MGA division, which has now been in place for nearly five years. And the alignment there was Volante comes to the market to procure capital, to underwrite niche specialist business without ever allowing itself to make money through fixed commissions yeah. and only through profit commissions, which are in turn not on an annual venture, but on a long-term aggregate agreement basis. So if we enter into a five-year binding authority agreement with a capital partner who happens to support us across a number of teams, there is only profit through profit commission. The fixed commissions only pay to keep the lights on. And so there is no incentive to underwrite for premium. The only incentive path is to underwrite profit through a gross combined operating result. And that will be based on at the end of the five years, when we present the first profit commission calculation, that PC calculation has to evidence profit across the capital partners participation, across the number of teams, across the years. And only then do we take a share of that profit. So the alignment was already very significant. Okay, we couldn't lose money because we had no capital in the game, but we couldn't make any. We would just break even. And for a company with people, the entirety of management and minority shareholders being on a salary only basis with no bonus, no dividends, it serves no purpose to do anything but to underwrite for profit. You wouldn't have many staff at the end of five years if they thought they weren't going to make a profit. Exactly, exactly. And that already gave us a, a basis for procuring talent, which was entirely backing itself for its underwriting capability, not with any other incentive to enter a get-rich-quick scheme, but those underwriters who don't raise an eyebrow at the fact that there's no bonuses, there's no dividends, there's no short-term equity event. It's long-term, it's profit commission-based, you're on a salary you've got your shirt coming off your back if you don't deliver the profit and you will wake up every night in a cold sweat unless you deliver that COR. That's very reminiscent of the old Lloyd's mythology, wasn't it? With the name being explained by the member's agent that, yes, indeed, sir, you could lose the shirt and the cufflinks as yeah. well. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. 
It's interesting that both of your capital partners, investment partners, and you know, core investment partners have been incumbents rather than private equity or that sort of thing. You know, so you're looking for much more permanent style capital, aren't you? The MGA, we had already evidenced the alignment with the syndicate. We're able to go one step further and actually put our capital behind ourselves. So myself as a founder, my management team, all the underwriters who are shareholders in the business have invested significant dollars into the syndicate funds at Lloyd's Capital. And that is in turn the same for our parent, our majority shareholder, Acrishaw, who have also done the same. In between us, we lodge over 20% of the capital at Lloyd's to fund our syndicate plan for the forthcoming year. So the alignment is at another level. It's significant. And we really do have the true skin in the game through both constructs. And so the syndicate, whilst it's not a sort of across-the-board sidecar to keep those third-party capital providers happy, is it able to write business to those MGAs? Can one half of your business write the other half? No. The short answer is absolutely not, because we made a commitment to Lloyds. We made a promise to Lloyds and the Lloyds Council in that application that the business we are bringing is overseas business. It's not business written in the London market. It's not wholesale business. It's not cover holder business. We are putting our people, Volante employees, on the ground in local territory to bring that business. And therefore, by design, every single team that is overseas that we procure into Volante goes into the Lloyd Syndicate. Every team that is not of that design and is perhaps a London market-based niche or specialist team or which may be an overseas team for which Lloyds have no appetite on that particular product, then that will fall into the MGA division, whereby third-party capital support that particular underwriting team. I remember what stood out the most out of that first podcast we did a couple of years ago was your reiteration that if your expenses are 9%, that's what you're going to charge your paper provider. You're not going to make a turn... You don't need to charge 10 and only cost eight and a half and keep that one and a half as an extra bit of margin. It was a novelty to me and it was something that I hadn't really experienced before, that kind of philosophy. Are you bringing that philosophy then into the managing agency at Lloyd's then? With Lloyd's, we obviously have a pure expense ratio in the syndicate. That's our expenses. And, it's yours. And exactly. And, and the capital providers who are third party, they know, they trust us. They get that similar comfort that there is no extra turn being made on expense. None at all. None at all. Everyone knows that about us. We evidence that reality because when we are running at 8% and the binder gives us 10%, we proactively endorse the binder to the 8% to ensure that we are not able to have profit through underwriting at slip. The moment an underwriter knows that they can make risk-free margin, the underwriter subconsciously or otherwise will take on risk they shouldn't. And that's a very quick path to the wrong outcomes, the adverse outcomes, which lead to all sorts of trouble and remediation. And that's what we're trying to avoid. We're saying, no, we don't wish to make any, and our financial statements at Companies House evidence that. You look at the EBITDAs on this business, XPC, they are zero or negative. It's only through the PC that we're able to show a profit for this business. And it's quite interesting going into Lloyd's, of course, and you with your focus on cost and that focus on sort of transparency and ultra alignment, going into an environment which, of course, famously is not been that great on expenses, not being the leanest operation, although, of course, it certainly has every intention to become much leaner and has become leaner in the last four or five years. Is there any kind of culture clash there in terms of you being someone who really focuses on expenses, you finding that there are some Lloyd's things you just have to deal with that you think, oh, goodness. 
Well, the payoff is about certainty. If there's capital outside of Lloyd's, which may, on the face of it, appear cheaper or more efficient, it does bring with it a probability of uncertainty through that capital not being as reliable or as dependent. Third-party capital will always have, and quite rightly so, will have its challenges around channel conflict, where its own underwriting teams may end up overlapping with what we do, or that capital provider may have its own internal appetite scope into which or out of which our products suddenly don't fall into, and therefore capacity has to be retracted. And each time those events occur, channel conflict, underwriting line distress, it's lost opportunity for us. And if we have an overhead at Lloyd's where licensing, rating, cost a bit of money, but bring certainty, that's a better position to have fundamentally anyway, because to be able to give our people and our markets the certainty that we're here, we're providing that solution, we will abide by our plan is a great message. And that's what the markets have always been fearful of. Are you here today and gone tomorrow? And through the Lloyd Syndicate, through that construct, we are able to say that. They can look at your results and see you probably will be here tomorrow because you've got more capital than you had last year because yes. you've got retained profits and other things. But now, effectively, you've created two businesses. Congratulations on creating the second business. How do you deal with anyone questioning whether you think one's nicer than the other? You know, Do you have a favourite child? Or do you prefer business to go into one business rather than into the other? And also that other question that you have a classic moment with, if an MGA gets some of its own capital, does it get to the point where some of its paper providers might say, oh, goodness, I've thought of them as a fantastic MGA, and I didn't realise that at some point in the future, I expect they're going to become a competitor of mine because they won't want my paper anymore. It's interesting because five years ago, the only path I had as an individual to bring an underwriting business to the market was through the MGA route. I didn't have the reputation or the track record to go and raise hundreds and millions yeah. of capital. And so I had the blessing of being sponsored by Frank Majors and the filler and was able to bring a business and today able to raise significant capital to put behind a syndicate at Lloyd's. But having lived the path of setting up an MGA, procuring capital for numerous underwriting teams in very difficult niche specialist lines of business, it's actually become something we really enjoy. And that scrutiny, that intensity, that sort of on the edge living with third party capital. And we've had the blessing of being with some of the best third party capital providers in the world. It's a very select panel of six or seven entities, but the best entities you would want above the door in terms of brand quality, underwriting scrutiny, capabilities, rating, licensing. And it's been an absolute joy to live that journey, so much so that we want to continue to prove ourselves to be of that capability that we as a business can procure that quality of third party capital. And that's a challenge for us and, and a challenge we relish because it gives us a chance to showcase our business. And indeed, the third party capital that's behind our syndicate is of equal measure, of equal scrutiny. We don't look for capital that might work to a higher combined operating ratio because it's easier for us. We want that third party capital to be as challenging, as hard, so that we live to the highest standard possible. So we really enjoy that. 
So, of course, a lot of those paper providers could presumably, they're perfectly capable of setting up corporate vehicles at Lloyd's and backing yes. that way as well. Yes, absolutely. And we're looking to never take business away from our capital providers who have helped us build this business to where it is, but to bring more to them. But through the journey, there will inevitably be changing of the guard and new capital providers come in, previous capital providers leave because there's strategic changes, there's appetite change. It's a changing, ever-evolving world we are in, as we've seen over the last 12 months alone, the Ukraine conflict, the macroeconomic environment, the cost of living, the inflation, all means a very different lens on underwriting as it stands today. And that can mean different appetite, different pressures, different ambition. But the MGA side of your business is always going to have a future, you'd say? Totally, totally. We enjoy that. And I think it's the ultimate measure of your underwriting capability when you can convince the best capital providers in the world to come and support you with a binder because a delegation of authority is probably the most difficult thing for an insurance company or a syndicate to get through, especially in today's process with regulation, with PRA. You have to really achieve and showcase and evidence a good deal of oversight compliance. And I think we as a business, if we can still command that sponsorship, that trust, that delegation of authority, then this business is on a very good platform in safe hands. Obviously, a change of ownership is always a milestone, particularly this sort of typical time of about five years. Mm. How have you managed to keep everyone rolling over and fully incentivized as they go into the next phase? Yes, uh, it's been an absolute moment of pride for me because I've always shouted from the rooftops about how aligned we are to capital, the market, Lloyd's, that we're here to underwrite. And whatever rewards come from that, we'll look at in the future, a long way in the future. And in this change of ownership, the entire set of people at Volante who are minority shareholders rolled forward their equity 100%. We didn't take a dime or dollar off the table. And some of the value for these shares is significant, life-changing for a lot of our people who perhaps have never seen that type of money before. And it didn't take me more than 48 hours to get 43 waivers, legal waivers of rolling forward the shares and not taking a dollar off the table. And I'm very proud of that. This business can boast a group of people that actively pronounce and announce that we're not taking any money for ourselves until we account profit to our capital providers. And we have to remember that this business in Volante was set up four and a half years ago. We started trading in Q1 2018. We entered five-year binders with the best capital providers in the world. Those agreements don't allow us to collect profit commission until the end of the term. So we have not gone and presented a profit commission calculation and collected profit commission yet. Yes, we've accrued a very significant number because the actuarial projections showcase a very profitable business, but we haven't accounted the cash yet. And we refuse to take money for ourselves until we evidence that. And we've actually agreed that we won't be doing that, legally agreed, we won't be doing that, taking money for ourselves until 2025 and onwards. That will be eight years from when this business was first founded. So it's really at the end of your first proper three-year cycle as a syndicate? That's correct as well, yes. And, and again, we made that commitment to capital. Coming into the syndicate, we don't want to operate on a year of account 
Profit Commission. Yes, we understand the RITC and the individual years of account, but we'd like you to put another circle around that and roll up an aggregate performance measurement formula such that this syndicate, 1699, only gets paid PC on the aggregate performance of the term of your participation, not on any one year of account. We are quite unique in that construct. So everyone's got to be patient, but they're happy because they're expecting it's going to be pretty good. Yes, that's the flip side. The PC agreements we've entered into are very generous and that's the way it should be. There should be no money for underwriting premium and a lot of money, a lot of share for profit when you deliver it. And in my view, the market's shot itself in the foot for decades by allowing cover holders or even syndicates to enjoy individual year of account, annual ventures, this business is a cycle. It's a long-term cycle. It's not a one-year event. Why are PCs not aligned to the actual cycle of this business is quite staggering. And why an underwriter, a cover holder, should be allowed to make margin on fixed commissions is just astounding because they're not at that point underwriting for profit. They're underwriting for premium. So we've avoided all of that construct. Yes, People say to me, Talby, you must be mad because you might finish this game with nothing. And my response to that is, that's absolutely fine because I'd rather lose doing the right thing than win doing the wrong thing. So when a piece of business comes in, are you looking to try and route it one way or another to the syndicate or to an MGA? Or is there a kind of triage that goes on in your mind or in your process as a business? Is this sort of say, well, if it's not this, then there. If it is this, then over here. Is there a methodology around that, about how you view a piece of business, whether it should go to your syndicate or go to one of the MGAs? So when a piece of business, which is a risk a submission from a broker, it goes to the team. I suppose they the broker know. sends it to where they want it to. They know the team that they interact with and they rely upon. And by virtue of our design, we don't permit any overlap. So brokers in a market would only go to a Volante team that is set up to service them. There is no other secondary option. So you don't have an inbuilt channel conflict. We, so we you don't can go allow here and go there. We don't permit it. So for example, in Canada, we have our team in Toronto and they are the only ones that can write Canadian business. There is no other team in Volante that can service that business. So brokers have a complete clarity in whichever market we operate in that local Volante team or the team in London that we interact with is the only option. There is no second option. Well, it's a good time to probably to talk about the market itself. You know, we're born into the tail end of, I suppose, the market was starting to sort itself out in 2018, but only just at the beginning of a long journey. And it's been a long journey. And I remember the last time we were speaking, I listened back the day before yesterday, before I came in, you were talking about the difference between the best price for the client and the sustainable price. Do you think we're getting any closer to the sustainable long-term price in many classes? I would have liked to believe that about a year ago, 18 months ago, with certainly the financial lines, rating environments. But I fear we're seeing a retraction to the price dilution again. If you, yeah, certainly we've seen DNO pricing come well, off. Exactly. If you look at the recent market trend, the pricing is a discount again. That's troubling in many ways because are we just taking the clients on a journey of riding the wave rather than having a stable straight line of pricing adequacy and that's got to be and certainly is in our shop the aim if we don't believe it's the right 
price. We won't participate. We won't underwrite the risk. We won't rob Peter to pay Paul. So that's the ethos. And, and I fear the market hasn't quite got itself to that pricing discipline, which gives clients and brokers the certainty of long-term sustainability. So you'd much rather have a price that doesn't really change much and obviously just bumbles along with inflation and whatever else. Yes. And that, you know, you know, should make money at that long term and also your client can budget a bit more effectively as well. Well, exactly. And above all, we're not then giving those clients a shock because they end up paying for something else that happened in the system that was either nothing to do with them and everything to do with us or systemically something we didn't account for through lack of data. And too often the risk pricing is bespoke to the risk rather than bespoke to the population of, of data that it should be. So sustainability is to avoid giving your clients a shock, ultimately. Certainly one part of the market that's in a bit of a shock at the moment is the reinsurance market. Now you have the syndicate, you're going to be dealing with reinsurers more directly, buying treaties and things. How is it affecting your planning at the moment, this very difficult market? It is difficult, but we feel it ought to be. It ought to be tough. It ought to be challenging. It ought to be priced adequately. And we have no issue with that. And we plan our business knowing full well and having full sight of where pricing is. And we're respecting that capital, that reinsurance capital, just the way we respect and nurture the, the capital we get on the primary basis for our binders. And we make that commitment to our reinsurers. Look, we're not here to create more vertical line size exposure for you by having 25 million this year and 50 million the following year and 75. We're fine to stay with 25. We've got to earn our spurs and we appreciate the pricing needs to be in the right place. That will in turn force us in our shop to make sure the pricing is in the right place too. I think the entities that struggle with reinsurance pricing are those typically not hard enough to push at the front end at their own coal face and then scream about the fact that they're having to pay reinsurers a price. Well, we actually take it that if reinsurers are asking us for this sort of pricing on our W&I, on our DNO, on our liability, on our property risk, then why are we doing anything different? And we ask ourselves that question, we challenge ourselves and make sure we ensure that our pricing is reflective of our reinsurer's stance so that we're not feeling that pinch. Because presumably of your track record, do you feel like you're getting treated pretty fairly or some of the reinsurers are not being unreasonable or being exploitative in, i.e., you know, really, really trying to spike things up and trying no. to sort of get some extra fat in there? No, no, we, we don't feel that. I think they respect the pedigree that we bring to the market. We've got very established underwriters. We've got local business that is less volatile, less distressed than what may come through into the London market, typically because we're sourcing it through local underwriters who are carrying that higher intelligence on what is good business and what may need a different level of pricing and structuring. And we actually in turn feel that the reinsurers are doing the right thing. They're, they're pricing to the right levels. They're not doing us any favours. Equally, they're not taking the shirt off our backs to get the term we use. They're not exploiting us as a new entrant. They're charging the right price and keeping us honest in turn, which I think is such a good discipline. It's good to hear someone having a good and fair experience from the reinsurance market at this time. We feel we definitely have. And, and to be brutally honest, the reinsurer panel that is leading our treaty programs in Syndicate 1699 are long-term supporters of our business. 
And we want to show them over the long term that we deliver the underwriting plan, the underwriting profit, such that they believe in us over the long term. Obviously, Accrashore is a business that has quite famously quite a huge amount of businesses, but also given them a huge amount of autonomy to crack on and keep their brand and keep what they do. But one thing it has been doing, certainly at the wholesale and insurance end, for its retail arm has been to manufacture product, should we say, because of course it can then distribute through its growing and very now very powerful insurance arm, particularly in the small commercial space in the US. Is that something that whilst you do have your independence, is that an opportunity being part of Acrisure and saying, well, we're quite good at innovating and manufacturing interesting products that other people aren't doing. And now we know we have friends definitely. <laughs> friends with great distribution. Is that something that you're tempted to get involved with? Definitely, definitely. Uh, and I think there's a high opportunity there to bring a creative business in that small enterprise sector, which should bring low volatility business to our capital partners. But equally working with Acrisure colleagues who are equally as innovative and agile in creating, bringing product to market. And I think we've got a real energy, a real pulse between us to make that happen. And rather than the old, more of the same on very complex specialist, potentially distressed business, to bring that good track record of SME, low volatile business is a real opportunity we're looking forward to with Acrisure. You're trying to innovate, you're trying to do new things, do things other people aren't doing and finding niches here and there. How hard is that to do? And now how hard is that to do within Lloyd's? I don't think the environment makes a difference. I think Lloyd's are very ambitious around product and do everything to make it happen. Certainly in conversations I've had with Patrick Tiernan and the team at Lloyd's, there is total desire to enable innovation. So long as it is steady, it's not going to create the adverse outcome. And if you can back your innovation with data and statistics and, and information, then you stand a very good chance of achieving that outcome. So I don't think the environment makes a difference at all. In fact, perhaps more enabling in many ways with the licensing and rating that comes with Lloyd's stamp. But equally, it's not sometimes just about product innovation. It's sometimes the proposition innovation. So we've established the Nordics business, which it's a very interesting market, the Nordics, where property business, which has been very profitable in that region, has typically been the domain of the local insurers, domestic insurers. And the casualty financial lines has been very much to the domain of London market international capital. What we've done with our team in the Nordics is to bring the best of both worlds together to create a property and casualty team where those underwriters were in their previous shops acting for a domestic and international insurer. We brought those two teams together to give one PNC offering to the local broker networks. And through that, we today have an audits team which is offering PNC across the spectrum of assurance from SME through to large globals and with very efficient digitalized technology such that they can turn around a submission within 15 minutes sitting on a train, for example. And so the quality of service, the breadth of proposition in terms of product and to the spectrum of assured is complete. And that's what I would label as innovating and delivering a solution to a local market like no one else has done. 
and that gives us an edge, an advantage. So it's almost via the process by which you're doing it, you're giving everything that they need so they don't have to go local for property and yes. international for casualty. They can yes. do both with yes. you. Yes, absolutely. And in a more efficient way they would do with either of the others. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes innovation doesn't have to be rockets. Well, that's it. It's doing the simple things well. And one of the other simple things we've tried to do well is make sure our underwriters are trading as often as possible, i.e. do they spend 50% of their time not underwriting because they're dealing with difficult, archaic systems and processes? Or do we make sure they're underwriting 90% of the time through efficient and highly digitalized systems, which we have done, without diluting the compliance, the oversight, the governance. You've been through a huge amount personally, which I hadn't been aware of until I contacted you to do the second podcast. I wanted to ask you, has that given you a different perspective on life? Perhaps I should probably tell the listeners the story of what's, what happened. <laughs> yes. So 14 months ago, as I mentioned to you, Mark, I suffered a very significant road traffic accident only a mile from my house, came and hit me head on at significant speed. And I was almost at a standstill having seen the oncoming third party. And as a result, I was in a near terminal situation where I suffered multiple fractures to my face and my skull, which took surgeons 14 and a half hours to reconstruct my entire face. And in that entire incident, suffered such a critical fracture, which led to air going into the brain cavity. And, you know, it was a moment where my wife was in the resuscitation room with me and she was giving me water into my mouth with a syringe. And as far as the medical team there were concerned, it was my final moments. And somehow, with God's grace and blessing, I made it through and went through significant procedures to rebuild my face and my construct to breathe again and eat again. And coming out of the first major surgery, having my jaws wired shut for eight weeks, which meant I couldn't eat, couldn't smile, couldn't laugh. I think it taught me, when you mentioned perspective, it re-energised for me the value of certainly what I took for granted every day, the ability to sneeze and cough and laugh and smile and eat. And the realisation that our face is our interface with the world. And without it, life is almost impossible. And today... I'm here and 100% back to what I was prior to the incident, which is nothing short of a miracle, given the medical surgeons, the emergency services thought that I should either be deceased or disfigured or disabled. One of the three, and with God's grace, I didn't fall into either of those. And it's a perspective of just being grateful to be here. As I sit here with you, Mark, I feel grateful that I can sit here and talk to you. Well, I'm very grateful that you're here. And you look, <laughs> and you look really well. And I, I wouldn't have known, looking at you, that you, you've been through Oh, thank that. you. Thank but you. Hopefully that's giving you all this energy to be onwards and upwards with Valente. Well, definitely. And I think it brings a different perspective. It doesn't dilute or weaken the energy with which I work. In fact... Does it mean you don't stress out about things as much as you think, well, actually, I need to have perspective. It's not like that day, that well, bad day I had. Yeah, it's, it's a different type of stress. It's, <laughs> it's almost enjoyable and... and you almost deal with the stresses and strains of the business in a very different way, as in it's not life or death. Whereas previously, one's reaction to losing a binder would be, oh my God, what am I going to do now? 
yeah, there still is, what am I going to do now? But it's not life or death because that, that feeling has become very real for me. And things can be reconstructed. Uh, yes, exactly, exactly. And so it's a very refreshing perspective. I'm grateful to the market, which showed tremendous love and care through that time. The number of cars and flowers and baskets of food that I couldn't even eat came to my house were wonderful. And, and the way the market transcended from a business relationship into a very human care was very special and, and that will live with me. I think too often people may perceive this industry as being very financially driven, only motivated by money or results. Well, I went through a personal trauma, which was significant for me and my family, but this market showed its human touch, its care, and the filler and acrishore particularly were on my doorstep the very next day for my family, whilst I was in emergency rooms being recovered from the brink of death. That lives with me and, and that's a credit to this industry. And Lloyd's and everyone else were just simply magnificent. That's fantastic. Something I've forgotten to ask was when the Acrishore takeover story came through the press, obviously there were lots of numbers about what sort of numbers you'd hit and what you were planning on hitting. They were pretty punchy numbers. I think the last number that I'd read in the press would have been about $350 million of GWP at the moment. Is that about right? And then, but probably tripling that in a couple of years' time. Yes. And, and okay, we predicate our plans on that expansion of existing proven concepts. We predicate our plans on being ambitious and achieving good critical mass. But listen, if it's not price adequate and we're only half of that number, that's absolutely fine. The COR is the one that has got to be 90% or better. That's what we live for. That's the metric. That's the prevailing metric. We never publish our premium volume. We never publish our number of staff. We never publish our EBITDA. That just doesn't matter. The only prevailing metric is a COR, the expense ratio, the commission ratio, the gross loss ratio across the attritional large and CAT, the reinsurance recoveries. Are we being good to our reinsurers who are supporting us with their capital? Are they achieving a loss ratio, which we are achieving, that is good and respectable? And that ultimate COR, which defines this business. There's no other metric that defines underwriting business. It's COR. And the ROE will move up and down with interest rates and, and how that performs. Pure underwriting results, COR is what we live and breathe. And 99% of my people in this business, Mark, do not understand EBITDA, they understand COR, they understand the plumbing chart of underwriting. And therefore, I'm happy with that. I hope they never understand EBITDA and the broker P&L because I don't want them to be motivated by the growth and that type of profit. Deliver the underwriting profit because in our world, in the Volante construct and ultimately Acrisure, our majority shareholder, the EBITDA we deliver is 100% correlated to the profit commission which in turn is 100% correlated to the underwriting result. So none of us in this business ever need to think about anything but the underwriting result. And that's a beautiful construct. That was the environment I was trying to create when setting up this business. How do I get everyone tuned in and worrying about the underwriting result and nothing else? So you're expecting growth, but obviously if the pricing suddenly falls off a cliff this time next year, then you won't be growing. Absolutely no, no we won't. We only want to grow and maintain and protect that pot of gold that is underwriting profit. Would you say, though, that the market's in a pretty good place? In general, yes, we asked about adequacy early, but generally you're feeling there are more places that are adequate than there are inadequate? Yes, definitely. I think those last few years have given us a very 
solid platform from which to move forward. But we do have some very strong forces in claims inflation, macroeconomic factors that will challenge our discipline around pricing. And my fear, my nervousness is about how well we as an industry hold that discipline and be strong enough to say to our clients, to our brokers, listen, this is a price and it's good for the long term. I don't want to come back and shock you next year by saying I charged you far way less than I should have. Look at what's happened. We've all lost money and therefore we need to charge you 50% more. That's not a basis on which to underwrite business. I forgot to ask you this earlier, should have done. I'd read a report that you'd be considering potentially names capital for next year. Is that true? Yes, it is. It is true. And it's probably a function of prior experience where I was at QBE and, and we had names behind Syndicate 386. Of course. And the scrutiny, the oversight they brought was good. It was influential. And my personal ambition around creating Syndicate 1699 has been about creating the most traditionalist and purest syndicate one can at Lloyd's and not to have names feels like something's missing. Names can bring that different investment, that different scrutiny, which I think would make us very complete as a syndicate. Well, the 386 names obviously extremely happy and extremely loyal, perfectly understandably, because they've made lots of profit incredibly consistently over a really long period of time. Of course, they haven't always had growth. Sure, sure. And, and again, I think it's predicated on that discipline point, which we always... Well, it's their um, money, isn't it? Live, so it lived and breathed, yes. Yes, and if we can, in Syndicate 1699, deliver a track record like 386, we'll be very, very proud. I've come to the end of all my questions, Talbir. I've really, really enjoyed speaking to you again. It's been fantastic. A huge amount has happened, not least personally to you. The business has transformed. I think we've certainly got to book in something for at least a year's time, or at the very, very most, two years' time to check in again. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. No, thank you. And, and hopefully the next year when we sit down in 12 months, less has happened personally and more has happened on the business front. <laughs> and, uh... I absolutely hope so. <laughs> Same for me too. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.